the handbook and within that handbook, it's not if your child's having big emotions or they're experiencing depression, what do you do? There's, there's no handbook to guide you in that. So it takes people in schools, it takes people in the community, it takes parents and caregivers, it takes students to figure out how we can better care for each other. And if we're worried about someone, what do you do, mm -hmm. right? You might not be the person who can magically fix what's going on, but you sure can help find what might help that person who's in crisis or who might need support. Is there a website um, or somewhere that folks can go to get more resources on, on the topic today? Yeah, the state has an Office of Suicide Prevention. They have tons of handouts and resources. Um, they give you information on text lines, but the Office of Suicide Prevention for the state is a mm -hmm. great website if you're looking for more information. Uh, the Colorado Crisis Walk-In Centers is a great resource mm -hmm. because you can walk in with a child, access a clinician who then is gonna help identify if your child needs more support, if they need counseling, if they just need someone to check in with them at school, et cetera, mm -hmm. uh, and kind of triage, what does that child need? And that's a free resource. So you mm -hmm. can go onto their website. I believe they have five locations around the Denver Metro. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, they're free. You can go in and do that. So you can learn information that way. And then of course, I'm gonna bring it back to schools, right? You can reach out to your school mental health provider, ask for a fact sheet, a tip sheet, ask about those trainings so that you too can grow your skills as a parent. Ask about the programming we do with students because right now we do programming in fifth grade, sixth grade, ninth grade, and 12th grade. Uh, and we use different programming for those different grades really to help make sure that our kids have a, adapted and, and developed the coping skills that they need to be healthy and they know what to do if they're not feeling great. Thank you for sharing those resources. Before we go, I want to share with everyone listening in and watching uh, some facts around suicide. Overall, suicide is the eighth leading cause of death in Colorado. Eight times as many people died by suicide. The Independent Audit Committee was established by charter and receives audit reports and other information from the Denver Audit Office. The committee strives to bring greater clarity, transparency, and accountability to Denver's city government and its residents. It is also responsible for commissioning an annual audit of the city's annual comprehensive financial report. This committee is chaired by Auditor Timothy M. O'Brien. to call the January 18th, 2024 meeting of the Independent Audit Committee to order. Uh, and Happy New Year to everyone. And before we start, I'd like to welcome and congratulate Leslie and Florine on being reappointed to the Audit Committee. So I look, I look forward to the next three and a half years anyway. I don't know about four, but uh, so. <laughs> Amy, could you take our role? Thank you. Here. Florine Nath. Here. Leslie Mitchell. Here. Edward Joel. Here. Frank Rowe. Here. Tim O'Brien. Here. All right, next item, approval of the December 2023 meeting minutes, not 24. So I move. Second. Second. Okay, any questions, comments? Edits, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Any opposed? 
All right, next item is a report briefing on residential permitting audit. Uh, welcome to the Department of Community Planning and Development. Um, Sonia, I'm gonna ask you to introduce yourself and the team. And Evelyn, I'll ask you to introduce yourself and your fellow uh, colleague, okay? Great, thank you. Yep. I'm Sonia Montano, and I was the senior audit manager on this project, so I'll do a brief intro and then turn it over to Sean to introduce the team. But we conducted this audit because residential permitting is an important process that impacts many stakeholders. The permitting process ensures occupants' health and safety, along with building structural integrity. Ensuring the process is consistent, accurate, and timely is essential. If gaps exist in, er in these areas, it can result in inefficiencies, such as project delays and increased cost to homeowners. We anticipate these audit recommendations will assist community planning and development to improve the residential permitting process. So now I'll turn it over to Sean for introductions. The slides cooperated. Um, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Sean Wyasong, and I am the audit manager for the residential permitting audit we are presenting this morning. I'm joined at the table by Kristen McCormick, audit manager, Marie Durant, senior auditor, Shannon Scheich, senior auditor, and Caroline Nelson, audit intern. I would like to thank uh, the dedicated staff at the Department of Community Planning and Development uh, for their help and cooperation during this project and for the work you do to ensure homes in the city are built safely. Uh, the residential permitting process is complex and involves the department staff examining applications against a variety of building and zoning, zoning code regulations. During the time under audit, the residential plan review team undertook these responsibilities while dealing with the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic, its resulting budgetary and staffing constraints, and a large increase in permit applications. Given these complicating factors, the recommendations we offer in this report will help community planning and development minimize permit review delays for Denver homeowners. Um, turn over for introductions from. Oh, right. Sorry, I was so engrossed in the story. <laughs> uh, good morning. My name is Evelyn Baker. I am uh, Deputy Director of Community Planning and Development, and with me this morning is Eric Browning, our Chief Building Official. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Okay. All right, I'll turn it over to Caroline to start the background section of our audit report. Thank you, Sean. And good morning, everyone. Beginning on page one of the report, permits are required whenever homeowners want to make changes to their property. Permits ensure that new construction meet code requirements and preserves historical landmark and neighborhood design. As shown in figure one on page two of the report, the volume of residential permits has mirrored population growth trends in Denver. From 2010 to 2020, Denver's population rose by about 16%. The amount of residential and intermediate residential permit applications nearly doubled in the three-year period from 2018 through 2020. There are two categories for project applications, residential and commercial. Residential permits are issued for single-family homes, duplexes, and additional dwelling units. Commercial permits are issued for triplexes and apartment complexes. Some types of home projects require a review by city staff before a permit can be issued. Others do not. Reviews are required for larger scale projects that fall into three categories, which are residential projects, 
intermediate residential projects, and walkthrough projects. These projects range from a new custom-built home to kitchen remodels. Trade-specific projects can be issued with a quick permit but do not require a review. After a homeowner or contractor has prepared the permit application, they will submit it through Denver's e-permit system. Before the project plans are reviewed, the intake team checks if the application meets minimum requirements. If accepted, the intake team transfers the application to the department's software for project review and notifies the applicant by email that it is time to pay the fee for plan review. Plan review fees are calculated using a percentage of the permit fee, which is paid later in the review process. Once this fee is paid, the project moves forward to all required review teams. The residential plan review team will deny or approve a project based on compliance with Denver Building and Fire Code and the Denver Zoning Code. If approved, the applicant is prompted to pay the permit fee. After the permit fee has been paid, the permit is issued and construction can begin. Depending on the project, other permit review teams within the department or other city agencies may need to review project plans before a permit is issued. Inspections occur after construction begins to ensure safety standards and adherence with permitted project plans. Once a project passes inspection, the permitting process is complete. As shown in figure two on page five of the report, if an application contains a mistake or is incomplete, the applicant will need to submit requested updates and changes to their application. Both first time submittals and resubmittals sit in the same queue, meaning that resubmittals go to the back of the queue for review. This can happen multiple times and result in the homeowner paying additional plan review fees of $125 an hour after three resubmittals. The department has developed a minor dashboard for small things like missing signatures to prioritize resubmittals that will take less than 15 minutes to review. Denver's permitting process was impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic by an increase of permit volume application, fully transitioning to an all online permitting system and significant turnover within the residential plan review team. To address the permit backlog, the department made three major changes. First, allowing zoning inspectors to approve plan modifications in field rather than going through review again. Second, the department implemented a new phone system that allowed staff to better manage call volumes. The last effort was creating the dashboard for minor resubmittals. As shown in figure three on page seven of the report, the department also authorized four efforts to help with the backlog, including offering overtime, using on-call employees, cross-training other department staff, and focusing on a single task. The department also contracted with an external partner to help clear the backlog. As of August 2023, department leaders say they no longer have a backlog of permits to review. However, department leaders have also said that they cannot predict construction trends and acknowledge that backlogs have been 
have been an ongoing issue. I will now turn the presentation over to Sean to cover the objective and scope of the audit before opening the floor for comments. Thank you, Caroline. <clears throat> um, as shown on page 51 of the report, the objective of our audit was to determine how effectively the Department of Community Planning and Development manages the city's residential permitting process by assessing how effective the department's resources, monitoring, oversight, and training are for achieving its goals and objectives, and evaluating how well the department uses and assesses its processes to meet applicants' needs. Uh, for the scope of this audit, we reviewed documentation and data related to Community Planning and Development's residential plan review team from January 1st, 2018 through April 30th, 2023 to compare data trends with performance goals and objectives for the residential plan review team, as well as documents and data to compare the residential plan review team's processes with leading practices. I'll now open the floor for any questions or comments. Any questions, comments? I have one. Yes. So, um, full disclosure, um, <laughs> we remodeled a bungalow in 2023. So we went through yeah. the permitting process in the biggest part of the bubble. Um, so, um, one question I have is: Is there methodology or thought behind why <laughs> one waits for the permit, the plan review fee, and we, you couldn't do like a sliding scale or flat amount to pay for that at the time of submission of the plan. It was about a month between when we first submitted our plans and then got the notice of how much it would be to pay the plan, plan review fee. Um, so the description that Caroline provided in terms of the process, and Eric, I'll let you jump in if I'm misrepresenting anything. Uh, she is indicating what the, she described what the intake process looked like. Um, and so the intake team is looking at all the projects that come in, and as soon as they have a project that's ready for plan review, that's when they, that's when they actually the Acela system automatically sends a notice telling that the fees are ready to pay. We can't have you pay before we have a project that's, that's ready to be moved forward to plan review. So um, there will be some back and forth depending on the quality of the initial submittal. If we have everything and it's all good to go, and in a perfect scenario, there's no backlog, so we, you know, our turnaround time is three days for reviewing those projects when they first come in at the intake stage. Um, you should receive your notice of, uh, that it's ready to pay pretty quickly. Um, the only reason there would be a delay in getting that is if there's back and forth trying to get an adequate submittal that's ready for approval, ready for plan review. Or in our case, you think it was probably just because there was a huge It backlog. could have been just the long line that you were in. Yeah, if there wasn't a lot of back and forth, we need this additional piece of information or this is misrepresented. If you didn't get those kind of comments and it just took like a month for you to get the notice saying it's ready to pay, it was just a matter of the, of the, um, the line that you were in. Okay. Yeah. It just seems like that was perfunctory so that we could have just paid a fee at the very beginning at submittal. That wasn't <coughs> delaying your review at all. It was just you were waiting to get to the front of the line so that we could take a look at your project, make sure it was ready for plan review, and then send you the notice. In a perfect world, we do that within three days. And in fact, I think even during the height of the COVID, we, were, we, had, pretty, we had a pretty good track record on that front, on the intake. It wasn't necessarily intake that was slowing things down. Mm -hmm. So I apologize that you had that experience. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
We begin our discussion of finding one titled a lack of manager oversight and documented processes delays review times on page eight of the audit report. The finding covers three sub findings that address the lack of formal documented processes in several areas such as training, training plan reviewers, overseeing plan reviews, communicating with the public and other city permit review teams, ensuring data and dashboards are reliable. Figure four on page nine of the audit report shows how the average number of days it takes to review a residential permit increased for all permit types during January 2020 through April 2023. <clears throat> Long permit review times can lead to increased costs for homeowners and more unpermitted and potentially unsafe work being done on homes. Long permit review times were a top complaint among homeowners and construction contractors we surveyed. Seven of 55 survey respondents said long review times increase the cost of their projects. Our discussion of subfinding one, insufficient training and oversight can negatively affect plan reviews begins on page 10 of the audit report. First, we discuss findings about training. Specifically, we learned there is no formal training program such as an overall training plan, um, uh, ongoing training or written policies and procedures. Department leaders acknowledge that training is not a one size fits all approach and the type and amount of training is adapted to each individual employee. Also, the contractor Bureau Veritas that assists with plan reviews did not receive ongoing training. With the significant volume of permits and complex permit review process, it is important that the department has a structural, structured and formal approach for training and oversight to ensure the work is accurate. We learned the department did not prioritize creating formal training processes because it was addressing its backlog of unreviewed permit applications. We were also told there's a small budget for training opportunities and some staff expressed concerns about the residential plan review team not being historically supported when budget decisions were made, given the, that higher level leaders make the decisions department-wide about how to distribute the limited funds among all the teams. Also, staff said there is not enough training offered throughout the year and external trainings are not beneficial to their work because they are not specific to Denver's residential permitting process. We could not determine the type of training staff received and the frequency of staff training because the department does not monitor or maintain training records. Management took steps to formalize the training process by creating training guidance and tools for staff, but we found the effort incomplete and some information was not useful to staff. Several plan reviewers said it was easier to ask someone who was knowledgeable about a process rather than trying to find the relevant guidance and understand it. Staff also mentioned not receiving guidance far enough in advance to prepare for building and zoning code changes. Also, management could not confirm if the documentation was comprehensive and contained all training guidance available to staff. We also found there was no process for managing the training guidance and tools and found some documents in draft. Management acknowledged that continuous pressure from the mayor's office and Denver residents to focus on the permit backlog makes it difficult to keep up with employee development. 
Our discussion of oversight begins on page 13 of the report. We found that some oversight of plan reviews occurs through a quality control process, but there is no consistent ongoing process for oversight. We were told it's due to limited resources and a high volume of permit applications. Also, there is no overall written policy or guidance on oversight and monitoring that states what should be monitored and how often. Further, the department does not have a dedicated contract administrator to oversee the Bureau of Veritas contract. Without a formal and consistent approach for training, oversight, and monitoring, errors by staff can occur more frequently, which can result in more plan resubmittals. Plan resubmittals can ultimately increase costs to homeowners and result in additional plan review fees being assessed. This table, which is on page 16, indicates that 577 permits required more than three plan submittal reviews from January 2020 through April 2023. Responses to our survey of homeowners and construction contractors showed that 25 of 55 respondents said their project required three or more resubmittals before being approved. Also, we found that 10 of the 22 resubmitted permit records we reviewed did not have the required plan review notice uploaded to Acela. We were unable to determine the extent of plan review errors because the department lacks a formal and consistent approach for tracking and documenting errors and errors were not recorded in Acela. We found examples of errors that were not discovered until several months after a plan review was completed Several plan reviewers told us they may not be aware of an error until an inspector discovers it later. By then, the error is likely large because of the amount of construction work completed and the amount of time that has passed. Managers said errors occur frequently enough to cause concern and errors made by other teams involved in the permitting process are also not tracked or documented in any formal way. Responses to our survey showed that 10 of 55 respondents said city staff made an error when reviewing their project plans. On pages 17 to 19 of the report, we make five recommendations. Beginning with recommendation 1.1, we recommended the Department of Community Planning and Development develop a written formal training plan for the residential plan review team that at a minimum specifies the types of training required and how often each training should be taken after staff members hired, how training will be tracked and documented, which staff member is responsible for tracking and documenting training, how often the training plan should be reviewed and updated, and requirements for individual training plans that ensure a focused approach to staff training and development <coughs> needs. The agency agrees with this recommendation and plans to implement it by March 1st, 2024. For recommendation 1.2, we recommended the department review its training documents and guidance for the residential plan review team to determine what information should be included in the training plan. This training plan should then be updated and finalized. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by June 28, 2024. For recommendation 1.3, we recommended the department develop and document written policies and procedures for how to oversee and monitor plan reviews completed by the residential plan review team. These documents should be, should specify the types and frequency of oversight and should conduct 
and, and who should conduct the oversight and how it should be documented. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by March 29, 2024. We recommended for recommendation 1.4 that the department develop and implement policies and procedures for how it will monitor all requirements and contracts with third parties that support the city's residential plan reviews. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by March 29, 2024. Finally, uh, for recommendation 1.5, we recommended the department appoint a contract administrator or dedicated staff member to oversee contracts with third parties that support the city's residential plan reviews and ensure that all elements of the contract monitoring policies and procedures are developed, developed in one, recommendation 1.4 are met. The agency disagreed with this recommendation saying it already has a designated contract administrator However, as we note in our addendum on page 20, uh, department managers said they do not have a designated contract administrator, but should have one to track compliance with contract requirements. Uh, I would like to open the floor for any questions or comments from uh, com committee planning and development and audit committee members. Evelyn, any additional comments uh, to what you've already provided? No, nothing in addition to our written response included in the report. Any questions from the committee? Jack? I'm, I'm just a little puzzled by what you just said. In other words, um, if I, you're shaking your head so you get the question, so I'll just. <laughs> well, let me, let me take a stab at it yeah. and make sure that I understand the question. Yeah. It's the question about the terminology around the, around the contract administrator. And I think it may just be a matter of that. Uh, in speaking with the residential team themselves, within their team, they do not have a contract administrator. Within CPD, we have a finance, a contract management section, and we do have a designated contract administrator there. So both things can be true. We don't have a contract administrator embedded in each work group, but we do have a contract administrator in our general finance contract administration group. I, I just have one simple question. Sure. I, I get exactly what you're saying, yep. but maybe the problem is that the people there don't understand that there is a contract administrator. Is that possible? Um, or? No, in this instance, and then again, Eric, I'm looking to you, I'm yeah, turning my back on you here, but the, um, the Bureau of Veritas contract, uh, there is a contract administrator taking care and feeding of the contract, paying the bills, paying the invoices, coordinating with the project manager within the residential team. Um, and in this case, we had a couple of point people for the Bureau of Veritas contract. We did have the supervisor for the residential team acting in that role as the subject matter expert. So the contract administrator will get the invoices, won't pay anything until they get confirmation from the point person within the residential team or the two others. Because of the scope of this contract, we actually had a couple of point people. So Eric and Jill Jennings Golick, our uh, acting de uh, executive director and uh, her day job is the other deputy director. They were all sort of taking care of the Bureau Veritas contract from, a, from the substance in terms of the work that they were performing. And then we had a contract administrator that was holding the, the checkbook essentially and monitoring that we were in compliance with the contract. Do you want to add anything to that? No, it's succinct, it's accurate. Does that answer your question? I think, it's a, I think it's a terminology thing. I think when you're asking the residential plan team, do you have a contract administrator? They don't have a designated person on that team that's monitoring the contract for 
paying invoices and that type of thing, we do have that person in our finance and admin section. Yeah, if I can just kind of clarify. Um, so kind of what we talk about in the report is, you know, <clears throat> we heard from the supervisor and other staff that it was difficult to um, ensure Bureau Veritas was meeting all contract requirements and they kind of had to pick and choose which ones to look at and enforce. That's why we made the recommendation about a contract administrator to um, have someone who hopefully has that time and bandwidth to uh, ensure that your Veritas is meeting all of the contract requirements without having to make those kind of decision points of which items to look at. Right, so with that clarification, I think, um, I think what I'm hearing is that there was a desire for more clarity on who would be the point person to ensure compliance with all of the requirements of the we had a number of, uh, of the contract. We had a number of contact people on our team that were interfacing on a regular basis with Euro Veritas and the residential team, but perhaps there was a lack of clarity on who was the one person that was looking at all of the requirements in the contract. And, and to that, I, I can um, appreciate that there's some value in providing greater clarity on that portion of contract administration. Mm -hmm. I was really just specifically disagreeing with the recommendation that we have a contract administrator because we have a contract administrator. But there is a, there's, a, there's a substantive process piece here that I think we can take to heart and learn from as we move forward. So I appreciate that. So Denver is facing a bit of a financial crisis right now. How is that going to impact the department? I think it's probably going to impact this department as it's going to impact all departments and all agencies within the city. So it's a um, it's a TBD kind of situation. We went through a similar type of exercise of budget tightening during COVID. Um, you can see some of the the results of that. Yep, there's some there's some changes in terms of the level of service that we can provide with that. Um, but we're committed to continuing to provide the essential services. Uh, that CPD is responsible for providing our stakeholders and will continue to do that regardless of what the what the budget constraints are. We may have to change some of our, again, as I said, stated um, service delivery times, but we're still here to do the work and we've done it before and we'll do it again. Okay, thank you. Should we continue? Sure. Okay, thank you, Maria. On page 20 of the report, we begin our discussion of subfinding two, which states there are no formal or consistent processes to communicate with homeowners and other permit review teams. On pages 35 to 38 of the report, we make nine recommendations related to multiple sections of subfinding two. I'll go through each individual section of subfinding two and their associated recommendations before pausing for comments and questions and then moving on to the next section of subfinding two. Community planning, and Development's Community planning and Development's website provides resources for homeowners to help guide them through the residential permitting process. When we reviewed these resources, we found several instances where online guidance provided outdated or inconsistent information on the permitting process. These issues are discussed on page 21 of the report. Department staff acknowledged their website contains outdated information and said they've received complaints from applicants about not being able to find the information they need. Our survey of homeowners and construction contractors also showed that 20 of 55 respondents found the department's website unhelpful. Although community planning and development is aware its website needs to be updated, it has no policies and procedures to update online information about the permitting process. 
Accordingly, recommendation 1.6 on page 35 of the report states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should develop and implement policies and procedures to periodically evaluate and update online guidance related to the residential plan review process to ensure it aligns with current practices. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by February 29th, 2024. Next, recommendation 1.7 states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should work with its communications team to identify and document areas where the department may improve applicant guidance for the residential plan review process by streamlining the department's website and simplifying language and instructions about submittal requirements. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by April 30th, 2024. I'll now pause to allow for any comments or questions from the audit committee or agency representatives before moving on to the next section of subfinding two. Any questions from the committee? Any additional comments from the department? Nothing beyond what was included in the report, thank you. Okay, let's continue. On page 23 of the report, we found plan review notices are inconsistent and confusing. Residential plan reviewers create these notices to point out areas where an applicant's project plans do not meet the necessary requirements for approval. When we reviewed a sample of 12 plan review notices, we found inconsistencies in three major areas. First, multiple plan review notices did not include specific resubmittal requirements that applicants must follow. And some plan review notices emphasized these requirements while others did not. Second, how well specific plan review comments were explained also varied across plan reviewers, with some providing more detailed information on code requirements than others. And third, the plan review notices in our sample differed on whether they included links to helpful online resources and guidance. 11 of 55 homeowners and construction contractors who responded to our survey expressed frustration with inconsistent plan review comments. Further, 14 survey respondents said that when they resubmitted their plans, they either received additional review comments that were not provided previously, were told to submit items that were already included in their plans, or identified mistakes made by plan reviewers. They said this caused them to go through unnecessary application resubmittals and delayed their permit approvals by weeks or months. Residential plan review staff said they were aware that guidance given to homeowners and construction contractors was inconsistent among reviewers. They said it would be helpful to have a set of sample plan review comments and to have more reviews of their work to ensure the team is operating consistently. To address these gaps, we introduce recommendation 1.8 on page 36 of the report, which states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should revise its existing guidance and templates for information required in plan review notices to ensure plan reviewers are communicating resubmittal requirements thoroughly and consistently. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by March 29th, 2024. I'll now pause to allow for any comments or questions before moving on to the next section of subfinding two. Questions from the committee? I do, but I'm not sure how to word it. Um, <clears throat> is there um, discretion on the part of reviewers for compliance with um, what I would call maybe standard requirements. For instance, there, in my understanding, there's a requirement that there be an outlet every four feet um, within a room. And 
in some instances, if one has a house, like for instance, that's brick, <laughs> one can't put outlets in the wall. One has to have outlets outside of the wall, or in the case of a kitchen, a little pop-up <laughs> that comes out of the countertop, which is very interesting. But um, I've, in, in the construction, spoke with a couple other friends who were electrician people, you know, and said, oh, well, there's ways around that. We didn't get into what that might be. Um, and I'm not sure if they were accurate, but it led me to question, is it, it are requirements like that consistently applied such that everybody faces the same thing? Because, for instance, those pop-up outlets created quite a bit of additional cost because you can imagine the contract, the cabinet person had to come back, the countertop person had to come back, drill the hole, the, you know, the electrician was there a couple of times, as opposed to doing it initially. So is there, um, does everybody apply the rules the same, or are there um, ability, is there an ability to make exceptions based on the type of construction or age of the house or that kind of thing? workarounds so the the goal is certainly not that individual plan reviewers um, have discretion in terms of how they apply the code regulations um, what you're referring to comes from uh, the electrical code which is adopted by the city it actually comes directly from the state of Colorado um, and so there's some jurisdictional authority and, and limited ability for the city uh, to modify or to apply differently than what we adopt through the state now, in areas where there may be a question about applying the language of the code, if it's not clear, then certainly the goal and certainly something that this audit has identified is the need for us to have better practices in place or policies that define the interpretation so that they can be consistently applied across all projects uniformly. Um, but, you know, if a black and white answer is, is no, the discretion is not allowed in something that is a defined code requirement. And what you were referring to with respect to spacing of, of the receptacles, that is clearly defined in code. So they can't say, oh, it can be, you know, 16 feet instead of 12 or something like that. Or it could be on the other side of the cabinet or room than where it is. I think there's some confusion among the, the uh, people uh, implementing these kind of things as to, you know, who's going to say what. Right, and it's absolutely our intent to ensure that we're applying these regulations consistently. And when we identify opportunities for um, you know, discrepancies to be resolved, then we want to make sure that we, we jump on those and we put something in writing that we can share with all our team members so that you don't get a different answer from your neighbor or someone down the block because that's, that's not appropriate and we want to make sure that doesn't happen. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't the results of our survey say that either the homeowners or the contractors are confused? Are all confused, yeah. yes. We and are, are getting confused. different responses to the same question. Yeah, the, you, you agree with that? I will say that the... You're shaking your head. You agree with that? I will say that the goal, we have a goal to improve consistency. Your mileage, your experience shouldn't vary depending on who your plan reviewer is. Um, and so we have worked constantly working towards that and constantly working to make sure that we have uh, the same same uh, review standards, same mo modes of communication, the same level of review happening from reviewer to reviewer. 
Um, it's, a, it's something that was noted in this where we were talking about the plan review notice template, for example, and I do want to, I'm sort of launching into my comments here, but just to say that, um, point out that we do in fact currently have a template, um, and in our response we said we want to update it. We want to make sure that it's continuing to evolve and be as helpful a tool as possible for our applicants and make it easier for the plan reviewers to be more consistent in the quality and the types of comments that they're providing. Um, so we, we have one, we need to, we are updating it, we're continually working on improving it, but the last point that I mentioned in our response to this recommendation is just that we, it's one thing to have it, it's another thing then to use it, right? So we need to reinforce with all the new staff that we've brought on board the importance of sticking to this. There's a, there's a temptation to just download that template and then sort of customize it and then eventually you have people, you know, yards away from where they started at the same point. So um, that's another key point. It's not just a matter of updating the existing template that we do have for this purpose, but it's a matter of reinforcing the importance to adhere to that template moving forward. And that's so, where the training would be very valuable, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we, again, in, the, in our response to the training-related um, comments in the audit report, we acknowledge that training is happening, but we could do a better job of being more structured and standardizing that training across all of our plan review groups, if I'm being honest. Uh, a lot of these recommendations are focused on our residential plan review team, but as pointed out earlier, we have other, other disciplines that are, are doing that same function. So um, we've pointed out that we've initiated at the um, recommendation of this audit report, great, great new fresh set of eyes to take a look at our processes. We've taken some of these um, recommendations and we're implementing a standardization across all of our plan review groups related to training documentation, related to process documentation and, the, and quality control. We haven't gotten there yet, but I just spoiler alert, we're also um, really interested in standardizing our quality control efforts. These are things that are already happening because the supervisors know it's part of their core responsibilities, but um, it doesn't have to be such different efforts across the different plan review groups. We can standardize that and we look forward to doing that in 2024. Laura? I have one, yeah, I have one follow-up question. Um, and excuse me if this is not the appropriate place to ask it, maybe later would be better, but it's come to mind now. The, um, is, are the inspections also part of the, of your bailiwick with the? Yes. The inspectors okay. also live within CPD. Correct? Okay, I, I thought so. Yeah. Um, because another thing that, with regard to the whole planning thing, um, that I found interesting is that we had a couple of oopsies um, in the inspection, which I'm assuming that the, you know, the, the contracting was done according to the plan, which was accepted, but then when we had um, a hot water regulator and a couple other things that were like, oh no, you need this here. I'm like, well, why wasn't that part of the initial review and not, you know, found by the inspector who then created more time, money, plumbing and that kind of thing. Sure, yeah, happy, happy to speak to that. And that's a uh, unique uh, aspect of our residential process for our single family and two family dwellings and those accessory structures. As a jurisdiction and as a department, we do not require the submittal and the plan review for those trade-based um, systems. So your electrical system, your mechanical system, and your plumbing system, uh, those do not require design and submittal and plan review. 
those are done based on the licensure and the competencies of the contractors uh, that, that obtain those permits. So, so there, is, there is not a plan review link, um, and quite frankly, the reason for that is because residential is less complicated than many of the larger sure. multifamily commercial industrial type products. We also recognize that there would be a substantial time and cost associated with asking for all of those designs for residential products. So as our standard of practice, we do not require that. So it is our inspection group, which, which does fall under my purview, that is responsible for uh, going to the field when these systems are installed initially and throughout until it's signed off um, to ensure that those installations meet code. Should we continue? Mm -hmm. As discussed on page 25 of the report, we found that applicants have difficulty getting the help they need. Homeowners and construction contractors can contact the department with questions through their general phone line and email, or they can make an appointment with staff at the department's permit counter. However, as shown in figure six on page 25 of the report, 34 of 55 respondents to our survey said it was difficult to contact someone at the department. Department staff acknowledged this, saying they often receive complaints from homeowners and construction contractors about staff being hard to reach or never hearing back from staff at all. The residential plan review team is often the main point of contact for applicant inquiries, even if applicants are told to contact other agencies' review teams. Plan reviewers told us many questions and concerns they've received from applicants were related to work done by other departments' review teams, which required more time and research to address. Residential plan review staff said they did not receive any training or guidance for handling applicant inquiries and escalations. Therefore, we offer recommendation 1.10 on page 36, which states that in conjunction with recommendation 2.1, the Department of Community Planning and Development should determine whether it has the necessary resources or needs additional resources for dedicated staff to answer applicants' questions on the permitting process. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by June 28, 2024. Additionally, recommendation 1.12 on page 37 states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should develop and implement written guidance for how the residential plan review team should address applicants' inquiries and escalations. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by February 29, 2024. I'll now pause to allow for any comments or questions before moving on to the next section of subfinding two. Comments, questions? Yes, Frank. I was just curious, um, you went to all online for applications. Is it still all online? Yep, no going back. <laughs> so if someone has a question, they, they were going in at the beginning to apply. They can't sit down and go through things with somebody. Like I'm thinking about people who are yeah. Maybe a little older, maybe not technology. Um, sure. And there was a there was a moment where we were contemplating maintaining two separate tracks, and realized the inefficiencies of that. So instead of catering to the old model, um, what we in decided to do instead was to invest in supporting people and coming with us into the new model. So we do have in-person opportunities for people to come in if they have questions. We have a um, we have e-permits assistance 
provided in the web building in person. Uh, you can make an appointment, come in, talk to someone, and they can walk you through that process. So we're really trying to bring people along with us instead of keeping one foot in the past and then trying to maintain the, the progress over here. So with all the processes you have, Denver has a process improvement unit peak performance. Have you availed yourself to that resource? Absolutely, yes. We have and all of our- And this is the result? Well, um, if nothing else, we have a shared language to talk about innovation and to embrace the culture of innovation within community planning and development. Um, we look to, uh, uh, all sources for good ideas, so it's not just a dedicated team, but good ideas can come from anywhere within the organization, and we've had some successes in implementing those ideas that come from the, from the frontline staff. Um, I think, in fact, I have up on my screen another document that just inventories all of the development services related uh, innovations that we've implemented, not just on the residential side, but across all of our functions to improve our efficiency and our ability to provide necessary services. Um, so innovation is very much a part of our culture in CPD. Um, it's not as fast as I would like it, if I'm being honest and candid with this group. You know, I'm always anxious to move things along faster, but there's, there's some value in taking a more deliberate approach before we do a knee-jerk improvement and, and find that it has other, other implications in other parts of the process. So um, all of our supervisors have been at least Greenbelt trained in the Black Belt, I'm sorry, in the Peak Academy, and we have a, a, a good percentage of uh, leaders as well that have been Black Belt certified in the Peak Academy. We really value the, the partnership with that, with that service. Okay, thank you. So let's uh, keep moving. As we discuss on page 27 of the report, the department receives unsolicited feedback from homeowners and construction contractors through emails and phone calls as well as solicited feedback through surveys. One survey link is automatically distributed in Acela to anyone who's issued a permit. The other survey is accessed via a link in the department's standard staff email signature. Both surveys ask applicants to rate their overall experience and satisfaction with the permitting process. However, we learned from department leaders that survey responses were not being used in a meaningful way, such as to inform decision-making about the permitting process. Also, there are no documented policies or procedures for how to use the survey feedback. Therefore, we make recommendation 1.11 on page 37, which states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should develop and implement policies and procedures to periodically review applicants' feedback, track trends, and evaluate how feedback should be used to improve existing residential permitting processes. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by June 28, 2024. I'll now pause to allow for any comments or questions before moving on to the last section of subfinding two. Let's continue. We begin our discussion of communication and coordination across agencies review teams on page 28 of the report. Community planning and development is considered the clearinghouse in the permitting process because they give the final approval for a permit once each agency has completed its review. When other agencies are behind on their reviews, it can sometimes delay the residential plan review team's approval of an application. Community planning and development has internal dashboards to track which agencies have outstanding reviews, as well as each team's average number of reviews for a permit. 
When we reviewed these dashboards, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure's sewer use and drainage permits team had the highest number of outstanding reviews and the highest average number of reviews conducted on a permit. Community planning and development staff said their final approval for residential permit applications was often delayed by the sewer use and drainage permits team. We looked at Acela data from January 2020 to April 2023 to understand how long it took to complete different types of permit reviews. As shown in figure seven on page 30, overall, community planning and development's residential and zoning reviews took roughly 10 days longer to complete on average than transportation infrastructure, sewer use and drainage permit reviews across all project types. But the residential plan review team does not give final approval for residential permits or zoning permits until the entire project is ready for approval, which may account for this discrepancy. We also looked at Acela data to determine the average number of resubmittals for these same review types. As shown in figure eight on page 31, we found on average, community planning and development's intake reviews had the lowest number of resubmittals per residential permit at less than one, while transportation and infrastructure sewer use and drainage permit reviews had the highest at nearly three resubmittals per residential permit. Although other review teams may be holding up the final approval of a permit, community planning and development does not have any formal processes for coordinating with other review teams. They often learn a review is held up when an applicant asks about the status of a specific team's review. Residential plan reviewers said they have difficulty answering applicants' questions about what other review teams have done as plan reviewers often don't know where to find other teams' review comments. In these instances, the residential plan review team must reach out to other teams to answer applicants' questions. The residential plan review staff told us they often have difficulty contacting other agencies and are frequently ignored. As noted on page 32 of the report, residential plan review managers said there were instances where different review teams have made mistakes that needed correcting, which ultimately delayed some permit approvals. Residential plan review staff said most errors they saw appeared to come from the intake team. The intake team can make errors by not accepting documents for review, putting documents in the wrong folder, or not initiating all the required reviews. We analyzed the cell data to determine how often the intake team was late in initiating required reviews for permits that were issued from January 2020 through April 2023. We found 1,613 permits out of the 14,967 we looked at had at least one review that was initiated a day or more after intake accepted the application. Because other agencies' involvement varies from project to project, the intake team can manually select or deselect reviews for a permit. Additionally, intake staff are not trained on construction plan reviews, so these factors sometimes make it difficult for intake staff to identify their mistakes. Though intake staff have checklists to follow for initiating reviews on different types of projects, the checklists do not explain why those reviews are required or when additional reviews may be applicable. We learned the intake team and the residential plan review team usually do not interact unless an issue is missed during the intake process or if intake staff have questions about approving an application for plan review. But the residential plan review team does not always provide feedback to the intake team when they make mistakes. As discussed on page 33 of the report, errors in the plan review process can also occur when other teams begin reviewing submitted documents before the intake team can officially accept them and initiate other required reviews. When this happens, documents may remain unaccepted 
and applications end up sitting in a queue until someone notices a mistake has been made. These errors are not usually caught until an applicant contacts the department to ask about their application. We analyzed the CELA data for permits that were issued from January 2020 through April 2023 to determine how often other teams began their reviews before the intake team accepted the application. We found 244 permits had at least one instance where teams review occurred before the intake team initially accepted the application. Despite these errors causing delays in the review process, there are no system controls in Acela to prevent other teams from starting their reviews before the intake team accepts doc documents from applicants. Therefore, we provide three recommendations beginning on page 36. The first, recommendation 1.9 states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should work with all review teams involved in the residential permit review process to develop and implement policies and procedures for how and when various teams should be communicating. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by March 29, 2024. Next, recommendation 1.13 on page 38 states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should limit staff's user access to specific functions in Acela to prevent errors arising in the permitting process, including restricting access to the intake queue to only the necessary team members. The agency disagreed with this recommendation. Their response to this recommendation states that restricting access to the intake queue in Acela would limit supervisors and plan reviewers' ability to complete essential functions of their jobs. However, they said they are open to identifying a new way to initiate reviews without affecting the intake team's workflow in Acela. As discussed in the addendum to this recommendation, we believe the department's response meets the intent of this recommendation. Lastly, recommendation 1.14 states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should document and revise existing training and guidance to ensure its intake team has the necessary information to accurately determine which reviews are needed for, the, for residential permit applications. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by June 28, 2024. I'll now pause to allow for any comments or questions from the audit committee or agency representatives. Comments, questions? Let's continue. comment as I was listening to the summary. I've read the report, the draft report, a number of times, but I wanted to clarify that the um, errors that were identified uh, as coming from the intake team um, are, some of those are human errors, right? Like if you forget a step of moving the documents where they need to be. Uh, the recommendation here is specifically around um, uh, training the intake team to better understand the reviews that are needed based on the scope of the project. And I did want to emphasize that the um, two things. One is that the intake team of all of our plan review related work groups has, I think, the most structured quality control program in place, one that we hope to look at as a model potentially to, to bring out across other work groups. So they are regularly looking for these human errors as opportunities to train and coach up. Either at a, if they see a pattern across the team, they can do a group training. If it's an individual error, they can address it with that individual. The recommendation here related to intake training is, again, not related to those human errors. It's related to figuring out which reviews are required. Um, and I want to be clear that it's not our expectation that the intake team be trained in every plan review requirement for every type of discipline. 
you were looking just at the residential volume of work coming in. In addition, the intake team is processing every other application. So if it's a commercial, if it's a zoning application, SUDP work, that type of thing. So it would be infeasible to expect them to know all of the requirements for all of the different disciplines, which is why they rely on the guidance that is provided by the, um, by the different disciplines and different plan review groups in terms of their showstopper list and what, what is the minimum to look for. So I did just want to point out that the errors that were called out for the intake team are not actually, we have a system in place to continue to address those. You noted the raw number of errors that happen, and again, that's a relatively small percentage of the whole. I want to point that out as well. Um, so we have a, a process in place for that. Um, and then we also have to manage our expectations in terms of what the intake team is able to do. So those are the two things that I wanted to, or one thing I guess that I wanted to call out related to intake related errors. So thank you. Thank you. Let's continue. On page 39 of the report, we begin our discussion of subfinding three, which states that residential permitting data is not sufficiently reliable. Residential plan review team has various dashboards <coughs> that pull data from Acela to help manage to help staff manage workloads, track backlogs and team productivity, and identify areas for potential process improvements. But we identified several issues with the programming code that populates these dashboards as well as the reliability of the Acela data itself. Community planning and development has two dashboards that track how long the department takes on average to review permit applications. One of them, called the Time and Possession Dashboard, is internal facing, and the other is publicly available on the department's website and shows the average time it took the department to conduct reviews over the previous 90 days. But there's a glitch in Acela where initial reviews may get generated two or more times for a given application once it's accepted by the review or for review by intake. Some of these duplicates are generated on the same day, while others are generated a day or more after the first review was initiated. To account for this, the dashboard starts counting review times from the most recently generated initial reviews. As discussed on page 40 of the report, we analyzed the CELA data from January of 2020 through April of 2023 and found 771 instances where multiple initial review tasks related to 524 unique permits were generated on different dates. Because the dashboards start counting review times from the most recently generated initial review tasks, these dashboards understated how long the department was taking to review applications by at least one day for all 524 permits. We calculated the difference between the two initial review tasks that appeared on different days for all 771 instances and found the department is understating the review times from these permits by an average of 22 days. These dashboards also do not account for the department's final review and pending final review statuses in Acela. The time associated with these review tasks are instead attributed to applicants and understates the department's review time. These inaccurate dashboard numbers make it appear as though the department took less time to review permits than they actually did. Additionally, we identified 40,287 instances where the same review task was generated multiple times for 6,854 unique permits on the same day. Initial review tasks accounted for 31,941 of these instances. These duplicates did not affect the dashboard's calculations for how long the department took to conduct reviews, 
but the department's data team must sift through these duplicates to understand the residential plan review team's total number of tasks. As noted on page 41 of the report, the department is aware of these issues with the CELA's programming. Community planning and development has not found a way to fix them. They also do not have any documentation that explains how the programming works or how various fields in the system are populated. Community planning and development also has a review's open and past due dashboard to help determine whether the residential plan review team is on time or late with their reviews. But our analysis of Acela data showed several instances where no due dates were associated with review tasks and review decisions in Acela. We analyzed 148,685 review tasks for permits issued from January of 2020 through April of 2023. We found nearly a third, or 44,554, were missing due dates in Acela. For those review tasks specific to the residential plan review team, 20,079 out of 77,420 were missing due dates. The department's data team did not know why the due dates were not being populated in Acela, as it is supposed to be an automated process. The department also does not have documentation explaining the logic behind Acela's automated process for this field. When review tasks and review decisions do not have due dates, it can prevent the department and other agencies' review teams from knowing whether they completed a task on time and are meeting their performance goals. Finally, on page 42 of the report, we also identified issues with the status of review tasks in Acela. We found 219 permit applications where a review team approved its review but later changed the status to not approved, 114 permit applications were approved by a review team after the team determined its review was not required for that permit review, and 724 permit applications that went through a resubmittal review by a team that already approved the application. Department staff said these issues may be due to mistakes being made when setting task statuses, or they could be the result of legitimate review practices. But the department does not have policies and procedures to identify what changes were made in error. These kinds of mistakes can impact applicants as they are notified when a new task status is set on their application. If a reviewer makes a mistake setting the task status, then they must tell the applicant to disregard the status update they received and let them know of the actual status of their application. These mistakes can also affect the department's dashboards, making it appear as though the residential plan review team finished their reviews faster and completed more tasks than they actually did. Additionally, the department's dashboards count a task as on time if the task status date shows it was completed on or before the due date. But if a reviewer continues working on a task after the status was changed, a seller will show the date additional changes were made in another date field that is system generated and is not accounted for in the dashboards. So, if the date that additional changes were made falls after the task status date and after the due date, the task should be considered late, but the dashboards do not reflect this. Our analysis of Acela data, discussed on page 43 of the report, showed 958 tasks had status dates that differed from the system-generated date field. Of those, 652 tasks differed by one day, three differed by 170 days, and two differed by 548 days. 
We provide four recommendations beginning on page 44. The first, recommendation 1.15 states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should document and implement policies and procedures to periodically evaluate the residential plan review team's data and dashboards to ensure the data is reliable and meets the team's objectives. This process should also include identifying data reliability issues and solutions to address any identified issues. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by February 29th of 2024. Next, recommendation 1.16 states, in conjunction with recommendation 1.15, the Department of Community Planning and Development should periodically review and update the programming code used to create the residential plan review team's internal and public-facing dashboards to ensure the data is accurate and aligns with current department practices. This process should be documented. <coughs> the agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by March 29th of 2024. Next, recommendation 1.17 on page 44 states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should obtain and review ACELA documentation on how fields are populated in the system, including the due date and task status date fields. The agency disagreed with this recommendation. The response to this recommendation, as seen on page 45 of the report, states the department's data team has already obtained and reviewed all existing documentation on ACELA fields. However, as discussed in the addendum, members of the Community Planning and Development's data team told us that the data dictionary they have is old and outdated, and they do not have any other documentation explaining how the due date or other fields in Acela are populated. Lastly, recommendation 1.18 on page 45 of the report states, the Department of Community Planning and Development should work with technology services in Acela to fix the scripting errors that are causing duplicate entries in the system. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by December 31st of 2024. I will now pause to allow for any comments or questions from the audit committee or agency representatives. Mm, comments, questions? Let's continue. Finding two, sorry. Finding two, which begins on page 46 of the report states, the residential plan review team needs more consistent, reliable data to effectively allocate staff resources. Overall, we found the residential plan review team does not have a consistent approach for assessing staffing needs. And although it makes a data-informed case about its resource needs, the team needs better data to make effective decisions. We found the department had not conducted annual assessments on the residential plan review team's staffing needs Instead, senior leaders prioritized conducting staffing assessments across many teams throughout the department. Department leaders could not provide train information on the total number of plan reviewers for 2020 through 2023 and could only provide their 2022 and 2023 analysis of the review team's staffing needs, which determined that four additional people were needed during those years. Department managers said having adequate supervisors is a concern because the supervisor to employee ratio is high with two supervisors responsible for over 20 employees, which does not allow time for supervisors to dedicate attention to training and oversight. However, department leaders did not ask for additional funding because of difficulties filling existing vacancies. We found Acela data was not reliable for making effective decisions about staffing and resources. We found review date, due dates in Estella were set further out 
than the goals set for residential plan reviews. For example, roughly 1,400 permit review tasks had a due date of 12 days or more in Acela after the department revised its review time goal to 10 business days. Due dates further out than 10 business days in Acela can result in a re review being considered on time on dashboards even though it took longer than 10 days to complete the review. Department leaders use the goal of two and a half hours to conduct a review to calculate the number of additional staff needed. However, the goal is manually determined by each plan reviewer, timing, who they time how long it took them to complete a review. Without a formal way to determine how long reviews take to complete, residential plan review leaders cannot accurately determine whether two and a half hours is an appropriate amount of time when estimating staffing needs. Beginning on page 49, we make two recommendations. For recommendation 2.1, we recommend that community planning and development develop a formal workforce plan that addresses the need to maintain adequate resources for the permitting process. This plan should align with the department's mission, goals, and objectives and include data elements used to assess workforce needs, such as permit volumes, workloads, and trends, strategies to address gaps in resources, timeframes for implementing strategies, steps and tools for measuring success, including timeframes, and address how often to reassess and revise the workforce plan. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by December 31st, 2024. For recommendation 2.2, we recommended that in conjunction with recommendation 1.15, the Department of Community Planning and Development should conduct and document a formal evaluation of residential plan review team data used to make staffing decisions and determine how to address any data reliability issues or data limitations identified. The agency agreed with this recommendation and plans to implement it by March 31st, 2024. This concludes our presentation. We thank you, everyone, and if there are any comments on this section. Questions, room. Jack? Evelyn, how many people work in planning and development? CPD, I think, um, pop quiz for me. I used to have this number off the top of my head. We had 315 budgeted positions last year. I think we got two or three additional positions in the 2024 budget. So around 320. Yeah, because it's, um, <clears throat> you know, just listening to all this, you know, I've always viewed the public works um, and public safety departments that have you know the largest number of people and the biggest interfaces in yeah. the city and then the rest of it's relatively minor. Um, it seems like there's a lot of work to do and it's not an, it's not an easy job because every time somebody's is late you know, it, it just hits a, an emotional cord. And all I can say is I'm glad that we've never decided to move a wall in our house <laughs> to have to have gone through that. And, you know, my one interaction with your department about eight or 10 years ago, I have to say, was great. You know, Lowe said that I needed to get a lot of work done and they did it. And then the inspector came by and said, in these circumstances, it didn't have to be done. Oh. And so 
my, my one interaction with your department was actually very good. That's good to hear. Yeah, we agree there's a lot to be done. Um, nobody's sitting around uh, twiddling their thumbs in CPD. That's a safe thing to say. Uh, I think we've worked really hard to instill the value of the work that we do. It's not abstract, it's meaningful. It makes a difference to every person in the city and county of Denver, whether it's work on your home or just on the work happening down the street or you know what's happening in our downtowns. Um, we know that the work that we do is really important and so uh, you know, the people that are there are very mission-driven um, and recognize the importance of that work and we want to support them. We appreciate the time that the auditor's office spent with us trying to understand our, our processes. I'll conclude by just saying that, yep, it's complicated um, and yep, we want to make it simpler and we have a couple of uh, significant efforts underway to address both the regulatory environment and our processes looking for innovations all while doing our core work of actually getting the plan reviews done and um, moving forward with the standardization, the implementation of structured training do process documentation uh, and, and other supports for our team. So we appreciate, appreciate all the recommendations. I think you'll see in our responses that in spirit we are on the same page. Um, nobody's gonna disagree with those best practices that have been identified. It's a matter of sort of prioritizing what we, what's possible to get done and we recognize the importance of prioritizing a lot of these efforts or initiatives identified by the audit team, so thank you. I, I would just like to um, say personally, uh, thank you for your efforts. I know in, in 21 and 22, 20, really 20 and 21, uh, it seemed like you know every third house was uh, wanting to have something done. Yeah. And I know how difficult it was even to find a contractor yeah. um, to get work done. So your department must have just felt like you had a tsunami uh, <laughs> hit you. Perfect so um, yeah. I appreciate your efforts over these uh, over those years to even stay afloat. Thank you so much. It means a lot. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, we have another audit briefing. Construction contractor pre-qualification.
Morning. Thanks, Carl. <laughs> so, construction contractor pre-qualification. Patrick, any opening remarks? Yeah, sure, Auditor. Uh, just real quick before I turn it over to Carl and his team to brief you guys on the report, I just want to mention why pre-qualification is important, right? It's important because it can help save the city a lot of time and money on the back end by um, wasting time on contractors that lack the technical knowledge, the experience, the expertise to fulfill these contractual obligations in the event that they're awarded the contract. Um, one of the things this report recommends is increase the transparency. Um, by doing that, it's good for the city, right? Keep that pool of contractors big, increase competition, let the city pick from a bigger pool. It's also good for the contracting community. You're spreading out that business. The city is, is doling out to um, multiple businesses rather than just a select few. So we view this as a win-win. Um, with that, I'll turn it over to Carl to uh, introduce his team and brief you guys on the report. Good morning. Uh, my name is Carl Halverson. I'm the manager on this audit. Um, on the team, we also have June Samadhi, uh, lead auditor, sorry, and then Katie Beverlin, also a lead auditor. Um, I guess I'll hand it over to Dottie in the airport to introduce yourselves. Sure. Yeah, um, I'm not sure who is from the airport. Uh, that's you. Would you like to introduce yourself and whoever may be with you? Sure. Uh, uh, Michael Cloud, I'm the senior director with Danny. So I support uh, uh, Danny on the prequal board as the co-chair, or excuse me, vice chair. Okay. And from transportation and infrastructure? Yes, sir. We have a few at the table and a few guests at the front, and both wearing white sweaters. Okay. First up, I'm Dave Ems, director of procurement and contracts for Dottie. And I'm Danny Abbott. Um, I manage the contracting and procurement group for Dottie and also currently serve as uh, the pre-qualification board chairperson. Welcome. And if I may, sir, you bet. Amy Ford, new executive director of Dottie, Earl Jackson, the CFO of, of Dottie. Welcome. Okay, let's get started. All right, um, I'd like to thank the Dottie team and the airport team for their cooperation and providing the information we needed to conduct this audit. Um, also, all the third parties and the external parties that we talked to, including contractors, other uh, government organizations, and industry folks. So, um, I'll get started discussing the background, objectives, and scope. Uh, then June will discuss finding one, and uh, Katie will end us with finding two. I feel like I'm absorbing whatever it is you're shooting there. So Denver's charter empowers two city agencies, uh, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and the Denver International Airport, with the authority to manage and control all city construction projects. Construction contracts can only be awarded to responsive and qualified bidders, 
And to meet this requirement, the city has adopted formal written rules and a process to pre-qualify contractors. These rules are in place to ensure contractors who bid on major construction projects have the relevant experience, skills, financial resources, and integrity to perform the type and size of work needed uh, for these multi-million dollar projects. And generally speaking, to bid on city construction contracts estimated to be worth $1 million or more, contractors must first apply and be pre-qualified with the city. The city has had pre-qualification rules in place since 1967. The rules have undergone multiple revisions with the most recent version adopted in uh, July 2019. Pre-qualification applications are reviewed by a board currently made up of 11 city employees appointed jointly by the leaders of the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and the airport. Board members should possess subject matter expertise in construction, finance, and or accounting. The board reviews contractor experience, qualifications, and financial capability to determine what categories of work and at what financial levels a contractor can be approved for. Although the airport and the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure both rely on the pre-qualification process, staff from the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure are responsible for administering the day-to-day activities of this process. This includes overseeing the application process and interacting with contractors looking to pre-qualify Um, and compiling information for board meetings and documenting those meetings. The city's pre-qualification rules govern this process. Contractors, um, they can apply for pre-qualification using the general contractor pre-qualification application or a joint venture partnership application. Pre-qualification is granted in 30 categories of work including civil work, building work, um, and work specific to airport projects. For each work category applied for, contractors are assigned a financial level. This level limits the maximum project value of a uh, pre-qualified contractor uh, can bid on. And they can also apply to obtain project specific permission to get approval to bid on specific projects. Generally, contractors will use this application to pre-qualify for a specific project where they may not meet the project's requirements. This could be to obtain a higher financial level approval or to pre-qualify in another category of work. Financial levels are shown on figure one uh, on page four of the report. And contractors can pre-qualify in amounts from $1.5 million through $50 million. If a contractor intends to pre-qualify in a financial level greater than $3 million, it must submit a certified audited financial statement with its application. The application process is done online and contractors must provide information about their business. A listing of information contractors are required to submit can be found on page five of the report. This includes general information about their business, past work history, um, and a letter of surety. Department staff compile and summarize this information, and the department supervisor reviews and approves the application package before it's provided to the board. The board generally meets weekly to review, discuss, and decide whether to approve or deny applications. Once pre-qualified, 
A contractor's pre-qualification status lasts for at least 12 months from the date of pre-qualification um, or up to 18 months after the closing date of the financial statement that was submitted with the application, whichever of those dates come first. Contractors must renew their pre-qualification status with the city annually. There are certain conditions where contractors are ineligible to pre-qualify with the city or may be denied pre-qualification. This includes contractors who have been debarred by the city, contractors with an average safety score of 1.5 or more from the past five years, and contractors with financial statements showing negative working capital, which is where the firm's current liabilities are greater than its current assets. The, objective, uh, the objectives of this audit and the scope can be found on page 23 of the report. We conducted this audit to evaluate whether the city's contractor uh, pre-qualification process aligns with similar organizations, whether the city follows its own rules for contractor pre-qualification, and to determine the efficiency of the application process and the effectiveness of the pre-qualification board. We did this by reviewing data from January 2020 through April 2023 to assess the city's compliance with pre-qualification rules and the effectiveness of the board in meeting the requirements, responsibilities, and objectives specified in the rules. We also surveyed other comparable government entities uh, throughout the U.S. as part of our audit. Before I hand it over to June to discuss our first finding, I'll pause for any questions and comments about the background. One important comment is make sure we speak into the microphone <laughs> so Channel 8 doesn't have to remind us anymore. But any comments from either the airport or transportation? Uh, no comments other than I was very encouraged by how they kept us surprised of the process. We wanted to kind of jump to the end, and Carl, June, and Katie did a great job of keeping us in line with that. But um, been through several audits of several, several municipalities, and no, I did find this one. To the, I know where I stood at least all the whole way. So thank you for that. Great. Thank you. I appreciate that. June? Our first finding begins on page six of the audit report. The city's process to assign and communicate contractors' financial levels lacks transparency. Mm -hmm. Denver's pre-qualification board does not keep records to support the rationale used in determining a contractor's pre-qualification -qual pre financial level. Although meeting minutes are kept, the minutes do not provide any insight into the board's decision-making process or what criteria the board relied on to support their recommendation. As discussed in the background of the report, the pre-qualification board can consider many different factors when determining a contractor's recommended financial level, including staff and resource capabilities, previous and current projects and project values, safety scores, bonding and financial capabilities, and any history of being prohibited from contracting with the city. As discussed on page eight of the audit report, we randomly selected 10 contractors out of 180 that sought pre-qualification from January 2020 through April 2023. We then analyzed all 32 applications from these 10 contractors during that time frame to assess whether assigned financial levels were calculated correctly. In 12 applications reviewed, we found a contractor could have potentially been pre-qualified at a higher financial level based on the average value of their completed projects. 
yet the board assigned them to the lower of the two potential levels. Staff in the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure confirmed that when a contractor falls between two financial levels, the board will round up or down at their discretion. Because of the lack of, of documentation to justify and support its decision-making process and rationale, we cannot determine whether contractors were pre-qualified at the correct levels. As discussed on page nine of the audit report, the city's pre-qualification rules allow the board to consider unnamed optional factors in its assessment. For example, the rules say a contractor's financial capability will be evaluated among other things. When the city determines assigned financial levels, uh, this vagueness in the selection criteria enables board members to make potentially subjective decisions, as interpretations can vary from one board member to the next. While we found no evidence of improper decision-making, such as a board member potentially manipulating the outcome of a recommendation, we cannot confirm this has not occurred because the board does not transparently document how it arrived at its recommendation. Continuing on page nine of the audit report, we found the board does not tell contractors why they were assigned a certain financial level or how they can improve their standing. This lack of clarity and transparency has left some contractors concerned about the fairness and objectivity of the city's pre-qualification decisions. We interviewed staff at six construction companies that are pre-qualified with the city in various work categories and financial levels ranging from 1.5 million to 50 million. More than half said they could not understand how financial levels are assigned based on the city's pre-qualification rules. As discussed on page 10 of the audit report, staff at four companies said they were not given transparent and objective justification for how the city decided their financial levels. Nor were they told how they can improve their status to qualify at a higher financial level in the future. These same four companies said they were unsatisfied with their assigned financial levels, and in some instances, believe they should have been assigned higher financial levels based on their bonding capabilities. The pre-qualification rules do not require the board to document its justifications for recommended financial levels. As discussed on pages 11 and 12 of the audit report, contractors reported receiving lower financial levels from Denver than from any other local and state government agency they had been pre-qualified with. Our audit work found evidence that Denver's pre-qualification application process and the financial factors it considers are different and more complex than any other comparable city and government agency. We surveyed 11 government entities and learned that Denver considers a wider range of factors when determining financial de level determinations. For example, Denver requires applicants to provide information across 15 topic areas. Others, like the State Department of Transportation and the City of Aurora, require information on only four areas, such as a contractor's past performance, their finances, or bonding capability. As discussed on page 13 of the audit report, Denver's pre-qualification rules do not allow contractors to dispute their assigned financial levels. The city's dispute process for pre-qualification decisions is limited. If a pre-qualified contractor does not agree with their assigned financial levels, they only have one option, which is to reapply. Contractors are not allowed to challenge the financial levels assigned to them. 
Among the other cities and government agencies we spoke with for this audit, we found all of them had a dispute process for pre-qualified contractors, specifically when comparing Denver's pre-qualification rules to the eight government agencies in our analysis that had a pre-qualification program as well. Denver was the only city that does not allow pre-qualified contractors to challenge their assigned financial levels. We have three recommendations for this finding. Recommendation 1.1 says the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and Denver International Airport should update the city's pre-qualification rules to require that recommendations made by the board are documented with detailed reasons for the financial levels assigned for contractors' work categories. The agency agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of March 31, 2024. Recommendation 1.2 says the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and Denver International Airport should improve transparency when determining contractors' pre-qualification statuses to ensure accountability and that institutional knowledge is retained. To that end, the agency should document justifications and rationale for assigned financial levels in both the manager's letters to the contractors as well as any meeting minutes for the pre-qualification board and communicate the justification for financial level determinations to contractors. The agency agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of March 31, 2024. Recommendation 1.3 says the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and Denver International Airport should develop, document, and implement a process that allows pre-qualified contractors to dispute pre-qualification decisions. Specifically, the agency should ensure all contractors are given transparent reasoning and justification for decisions on assigned financial levels. This process should be codified in the city's pre-qualification rules as part of the implementation of Recommendation 1.1. The agency also agreed with this recommendation with the implementation date of June 1st, 2024. I would now like to open the floor for any questions or comments from the agency and audit committee members. Questions from the audit committee? Comment, oh, Leslie. Um, a couple of questions. The first one's just technicality. How do you, how is a safety score determined? Where does that number come from? It's self-reported from the contractors themselves. They give us the five years worth of safety scores from their insurance companies. And then we use an average over those five okay. years to determine whether, you know, they're under that 1.5 number or not. Okay, great. Thank yeah. I just, it kept referring to safety scores and I was like, well, I don't know where that number comes from. And then the second question, and Danny, I think you're the perfect person to answer this. What, what is your process? Do you have a, a matrix, a grid, a scoring system? You know, when you're given, I think these four or 15 data points to make a decision of whether or not to qualify a, a contractor. Are they weighted? I'm just curious sure. what that process is. So we do, um, we have a full-time um, pre-qualification coordinator who facilitates um, application process and takes all of those different points and um, consolidates them into a data sheet is what we call it. So the board sees a snapshot, right? Safety score, bonding information, kind of condenses it into one sure. document that's okay. easy to, to, to review. And those data sheets, along with the application itself, and we have um, uh, spreadsheets that we provide to the contractors to give us their current <laughs> projects, what they're working on, their experience, 
All of that um, is collected into one package. Those packages go out early on a Thursday morning so that the board has time to review before the meetings on Thursdays at three o'clock. Um, and then really it's an open forum for the, the subject matter experts, the board members, to take a look at all of that, that information. Um, where does their experience lie, the safety scores, you know, basic snapshot of financials, um, and kind of consider that past work with the city, have they worked with the city, Did, you know, have we performance, you know, kind of conversations. And, you know, we take those data points as a starting point for the board to discuss and, you know, kind of look at the levels and make a determination on what the board feels is appropriate as far as categories to be approved in and then the financial levels that are preset. So that's kind of a snapshot of, okay. of how it works. Jack? Yeah, I, you know, going back to an earlier comment that was made and, you know, maybe going to page 12 um, and um, in terms of my own experience, I've been an expert witness for uh, several bonding companies in litigation with contractors, and I'm, I'm talking about some high exposure stuff, um, et cetera. <clears throat> and in, <clears throat> in terms of my experience, you know, plus some other experts that they have, you know, when I take a look at what these bonding companies do, because they're putting their money on the line on these contracts, and um, I guess I'm a little bit, and, and maybe you can explain to me why I shouldn't be, but I don't think this is all that complicated. In other words, you either get the bonding or you don't get the bonding, because if you get the bonding, you've got some very big insurance companies who are backing up, and you gotta say to yourself, what, it's not a case of wasting people's time but are you, are you um, denying certain people the ability to, uh, you know, apply, which in, in, in essence costs all of our taxpayers an awful lot of money, or, and are you just getting caught up, excuse my using this term, in your underwear? Excuse my being so forward, but. Well, certainly bonding capability is one of those data points that we consider that the board looks at. Um, is it? Well, obviously the only one, no. We have, no. right, we have the well kind of rounded picture of the company's experience, past performance, um, safety scores, all of those things that we've talked about that we require, have they been debarred, right? Um, just to make sure that we do have, um, you know, the, the right bidding pool for our construction work. So we have heard that before. We know other municipalities look at bonding maybe more heavily than we do. Um, but it is one of the factors that we do consider, but no, not the I, only. You, so. you haven't answered my question. The question is this, let's go to page 12. And you, you see Denver's got all these uh, diamonds in this thing. And the question becomes to me, you know, how many categories do you really need? And the second is, what kind of weight do you put on them? In other words, if you're looking at, you know, 15, you have categories and you're weighting a lot of that smaller stuff as heavily as you are the bonding and, and the reputational issues, 
in terms of having worked with the city. Sir, I understand your question. I appreciate it. Um, I'm, so, I'm sorry to... No, no, it's a, I think it's a, of strong value because not maybe all line items that you're seeing are equal on risk. And bonding, of course, would lessen the risk for consideration. So I do think it's something that we can take a look at um, because there is an assurance of their ability to perform uh, to, in, in order to get that bond. So some of the deep dives you might do on financials might be looked at. This kind of coincides with our agreement with all three audit findings. Uh, the pre-qualification rules being updated, improved transparency and dispute. Uh, the board meets next Thursday, the 25th, and that's on the agenda. And I think this is the topic that you bring up is also open for discussion for the pre-qual board to take a look at. We heard loud and clear about efficiencies throughout the entire process, and that is certainly one, one element of that. Yeah, and if you think I'm out, I'm out of line, please feel free to say so, because I'm not, you know. <clears throat> and I, I would look for a bond if somebody's working on my house first and foremost, so I can't disagree with you, sir. Yeah, I, I was actually relieved to see such a thorough process and that there, I mean, you don't normally in a city government look at something and say, wow, they really, they're like, they're going, they're going all the way. So I actually like the fact, and it's almost identical to Fort Collins in Oklahoma City. Um, I think transparency increased, great, the stuff you recommended, but they're not saying there's too much. And I, 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 I want to know if someone's a convicted criminal. Like, I'm sorry that Oklahoma City doesn't, that. but so actually, I, I yeah. don't, don't try to take stuff off. Just no, try to find efficiencies, right, is my recommendation. But. That also is appreciated. There's a system of asset management by the federal government to ensure that a business is entitled to do work for the federal government. So we would question why can they do work with us if they can't for the federal government. So of course, things like that will remain. Yeah, I think what, and thank you for your comments. Um, I think what I'm hearing Jack say is, if you value the organization chart the same way that you, with the same weight that you value the bonding, you really need to rethink that one through. And that was my uh -huh. question to Danny earlier. Is <laughs> right. there a matrix, is there a grid? Yeah. Because I'm looking at this going, in my mind, the very first question is, are you bonded? Right. If you're not, then we're done. We're not, we're not gonna go any further. Okay, you're bonded, boom. And then the rest to me, not all of them, but a lot of this stuff is just checking off the boxes. Okay, we probably should have um, a organizational chart so people know who to contact in the event of a problem. Well, that should just be check off the box pretty standard. So um, I'm, I'm with you, Ed. I, I don't disagree with really anything that's on this list. It's a question of how is it weighted. Sure. Yeah, uh, and that's. And we could certainly take that back to the board and discuss <coughs> that, you know, and reevaluate, or maybe there needs to be a matrix or something. We're not opposed to any of those um, ideas. So we would just like to get, now that the holidays are over and we had you know, a lot of responses were due right before Christmas, and now we're kind of back in the swing of things, be able to get it on the agenda and have those discussions with the board. So to, you know, codify them the rule, change, that kind of thing. Okay, but you do agree with the, all the recommendations? And oh, yeah, we do. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And it's on the agenda for next Thursday, the first time the board's gotten together after the holidays and break. Thank you. Uh, all, all the recommendations are, including, including today's comment. All right. Katie? Finding two found on page 17 of the report found that the pre-qualification board is not receiving accurate and complete information about potential city contractors. 
For Denver's pre-qualification board to determine contractor's pre-qualification eligibility, contractors must provide information about their business, qualifications, past work history, financial information, and other details. A pre-qualification coordinator in the department then summarizes the contractor's information and provides it to the board. We found the board is not always receiving accurate information in this summary. More than half of the board packages we reviewed contained at least one error. When information that would disqualify a contractor from consideration is neither requested nor verified, the city risks pre-qualifying companies that are ineligible to contract with the city. And decisions may not comply with the rules or the Denver Charter. When the board does not receive accurate or complete information, it reduces board members' ability to make decisions effectively. Subfinding 2.1 found on page 18 of the report states that the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure does not collect and verify some information that could disqualify contractors from prequalification. The application for prequalification fails to ask contractors about required disclosures. The application does not require contractors to disclose if contractors are behind on payments owed to the city or have defaulted on financial obligations or contracts with the city. Contractors may not be aware that they are ineligible for prequalification if they are behind on payments or are in default. Additionally, city decision makers may not be aware of cases where a contractor is ineligible because self-reported information is not validated. There are no policies or procedures to ensure staff verified whether contractors are behind on payments in default with the city or to verify an applicant's debarment status. The pre-qualification board risks approving contractors who should not be allowed to pre-qualify. And as a result, the city may risk violating the Denver Charter requirement that construction contracts be awarded only to responsive, qualified bidders. Recommendation 2.1 found on page 19 says, to ensure the board has the information it needs to ensure its decisions comply with the pre-qualification pre rules, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and Denver International Airport should update the application for pre-qualification to require that applicants disclose whether they are in arrears or in default on city obligations, whether by debt or contract, update the pre-qualification -qual pre policies and procedures to include processes for staff to verify and document the review of an applicant's potential debarment status with the city and whether they are in arrears or default that the department should update applications for pre-qualifications. The agency agreed to this recommendation with a target implementation date of March 31st, 2024. I will now pause for any comments or questions. Mm. Comments, questions? On all three? Um, sure. No. Uh, those are all operational and those have all been implemented. I think June, you bring, uh, Katie, you bring up a good point that was discussed during June's discussion. Um, as long as with the bonding and the SAM registration, I think vendor performance uh, is something we may look at as well as far as considering prior vendor performance with the city in order to be qualified for the next job. Okay. Yeah, so 2.1 and 2.2 we've already addressed. Um, as Dave said, more, these are more operational things and then internal business processes. So we've already updated these and these are already in place. Okay. So these are already taken care of. Thank you. Okay. Katie? Subfinding 2.2, starting on the bottom of page 19 of the report, found that the supervisory reviews of summary information given to the pre-qualification board are not effective. 
In reviewing applications, supporting documentation, and summary information given to the board, we identified inaccuracies and calculation errors in documents manually prepared by the pre-qualification coordinator. We also found that the supervisor's review of this information was not effective at ensuring information was accurate before being presented to the board. The documents presented to the board, a data sheet and a summary sheet, are manually created using information from a contractor's application. We found that more than half, 16 of the 29 data sheets we reviewed contained at least one error. We also found that average safety scores on nine data sheets did not match our recalculation, mostly due to data entry errors. This resulted in safety averages being over or understated. We found that some rules were also not followed, such as using safety scores older than five years or staff using, few, staff using fewer than five scores to calculate the average. We identified information that did not match source documentation, such as dollar amounts from bonding letters and financial statements. We also found data sheets that were incomplete. Our review of the summary sheets found pre-qualification staff miscalculated average amounts for contracts past work projects. We found that 29 of the 52 summary sheets reviewed had inaccurate financial levels for work categories. The methodology staff used to calculate work category averages did not follow procedures. When we asked the supervisor about the inaccuracies, we were told that they do not review the data used in staff's calculations. They only check staff's assessment of eligibility, bonding capacity, and recommended financial amounts. The review process inaccuracies indicates the process is not effective at ensuring the board receives accurate information to make its decisions. While this process is referenced in the department's policies and procedures, it lacks details describing the purpose of the review and the checks the re reviews ought to entail. Federal standards says managers should design processes to detect, prevent, or reduce risks that interfere with achieving the organization's objectives. Managers should also implement control activities through policies to mitigate risk. Without accurate information, the board members risk making decisions that violate the city's prequalification rules. If the board is making decisions based on inaccurate information, it can affect financial level determinations for contractors, poten potentially resulting in otherwise eligible contractors being denied prequalification or in contractors being prequalified for projects valued at higher or lower levels than the con contractor's true capacity. Recommendation 2.2 found on page 22 of the report states that the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure and Denver's International Airport should formally document how supervisors review and approve application packages for contractors seeking prequalification. This should be done through formalized policies and procedures to ensure information prepared by the prequalification coordinator is consistent with city rules and that the prequalification board receives accurate information. At a minimum, the procedures should detail who is to perform the review, the steps involved in the review, and the steps involved when errors are identified. The agency agreed with this recommendation with a target implementation date of March 31st, 2024. This concludes our audit presentation. I will now open the floor for any comments or questions. Questions? Comments? Yeah, I would just say that 2.2, we've also mm -hmm. um, updated uh, the coordinator's um, processes to involve her supervisor in doing spot checks 25% of the um, applications per week that um, her supervisor will go in and just verify the, the we use a variety we use some spreadsheets we used to use access um, this data set that that the applications were pulled from obviously were a pivotal time um, in our world and so 
Um, we have, during that time, moved from an email-based submission process to now we're using B2G Now to, um, to uh, uh, receive those applications. The same system that DSBO uses, CDOT uses it. We're trying to streamline finding efficiencies for folks to submit their applications. And so we're finding that a lot of the information is being collected in more, it's an electronic way instead of so, you know, that data entry way. So I believe that we're gonna find fewer errors just because it, we're using technology, right? Um, but also implementing a review process where that coordinator supervisor checks 25% of the data sets every week. Um, we think that we'll be able to catch, you know, any of those, those points that you guys identified for us. So, so, so Katie, um, both bullets on 2.1 and 2.2 uh, have been implemented. Yeah, great. All right. <clears throat> well, that concludes the briefing. Thank you very much. Um, you know, I think I stated at the front end of the audit by Patrick, I mean, this is an important process. I mean, it, it can make the results more competitive, which results in lower cost to the taxpayer or better better projects, so. And a more, for, a more, a more fair system. Correct. To the general yes. contractors. Yeah. Yeah. So, appreciate your cooperation and look forward to following up with you. Thank you for your time. Thank you. you bet. All right. <clears throat> Next item is general business. Our next meeting is Thursday, February 22nd, right here in the Par Widener room. Um, with that, I'd like to adjourn into executive session to discuss uh, the ongoing external audit. <clears throat> Frank, this might be a new process for you, but we go into executive session. It's an ongoing audit. We don't want to be disclosing something about the audit that might look like a, a significant risk today only to find out next month that it's really not. So we're in executive session. If I can get a motion to go into executive session. So moved. Second. Any discussion? All in favor? Aye. Aye. And we are in executive session. Thank you. Independent walking, toddlers emerge from a total reliance on you and begin to actively explore their environments. Many of the paintings at the Clifford Stone Museum will be at eye level for your toddler, which will be such a special experience for them. Try getting down on their level, sitting on the floor or lying down in front of the painting. Imagine that you and your toddler are transported inside the painting. Talk about what you see, what you hear and feel. Find different shapes in the paintings and try making them with your body. 
At the Clifford Still Museum, your toddler will be invited by our visitor services team to be an art protector. CSM staff will explain what it means to be an art protector and deputize them in their new role with an official art protector sticker. If you'd like to introduce this concept at home, share that each of our artworks at the Clifford Still Museum is one of a kind, meaning we all have a role to play in keeping them safe and clean. Art protectors do not touch the artwork and they make sure the adults in their group also keep their hands off. For some children, this will be enough direction, but many will wanna understand why. And you can explain that no matter how clean our hands are, even if we just wash them, our skin still has oils on it that could damage our art. Use a small handheld mirror or cell phone screen to demonstrate to children that their fingerprints can still leave residue. When they touch a clean mirror, it still leaves a mark because of the oils on our hands. Your toddler will enjoy touching or holding objects while looking at the artworks. Check out a tactile book at the front desk so that your toddler can experience the feel of the materials that Clifford still used, like bare canvas and oil-painted canvas. We can't wait to see you and your kids here in the galleries at the Clifford Still Museum. All kids 17 and under get in free. During a car crash, your body is subjected to an intense amount of force. Hitting the windshield at just 30 miles per hour feels like the equivalent of falling off a three-story building. Fortunately, my assistant Logan here was wearing his seatbelt when he crashed. Or I wouldn't be here today. No one is above the laws of physics. Buckle up and shift into safe. Ah yes, Colorado winters. Drawing Colorado drivers out of hibernation. Most emerge from their dormancy attentive and prepared. While evolution has been unkind to others, granting them no instincts whatsoever. A stark contrast to drivers who thrive in this environment and develop a keen understanding of winter road rules. Highway signage, signal alerts. The traction law tells Colorado drivers that with adequate tires and proper tread depth, it's okay to roam the roads unlike hapless motorists with bald tires, falling prey to lurking tow trucks and embarrassment. Learn more about winter driving in the wild at winter.codot.gov. On this week's episode of Restaurant Scenery, we're beautiful Sedalia, Colorado. I'm your host, Larry Harrison. I'm gonna take you to five restaurants in five hours. Let's eat. Confession time at Bud's Bar here in Sedalia. The reason why we're filming Sedalia is because I love Bud's Bar. I think it's one of the best burgers in the city. Been here since 1948. You believe that? Four different owners. And what's amazing about this place is the menu. That's it. Keep it simple, stupid, right? The KISS method? 
burger, cheeseburger, or double. That's your options. That, they don't even have fries. It comes with chips. And the other thing that's amazing, cash only, no credit card. I love the vibe of the place. And I'm telling you, the burger is money. You know you're at a special place when there's a book written about it. Really neat, I've just been thumbing through it. Pictures and stories about the four different owners. And this, this used to be a mechanic shop before it became this restaurant. This is what we're coming here for. This is no mystery, you're coming for the burger. They give it a side of pickles and onion. I just throw it right on there. One of the juiciest burgers in all of Colorado. So happy it smells so good. Mm. Simple food, done right. I could eat here daily. Absolutely in the conversation, one of the best burgers in all of Colorado. To get a taste of the real America, come down to Bud's Bar, tell him I sent you. You will absolutely thank me. Ah, uh, great way to start here at O'Brien's Cafe in Sedalia. The root beer float. They've been here since 1994, family owned and operated. Breakfast and lunch, it's like a diner like what I grew up with on Long Island. You can get anything you want. You know, you can get a breakfast burrito for lunch or a cheeseburger for breakfast.